0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm John Ford, in for Kelly Evans, and we are picking up right where Scott and the Traders left off in Cupertino, California, at Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. Apple shares hitting a record high today, the tech giant nearing a market cap near $3 trillion. Now, in addition to a new headset people hope to see, Apple also expected to announce new versions of its operating systems for the iPhone, iPad, Mac, possibly some custom chips as well. We're going to bring all the key headlines throughout this hour. Our own Steve Kovac is live on the ground at WWDC while Rosenblatt's Barton Crockett and Casey Newton, founder of Platformer and a CNBC contributor, are with me to discuss what the new products mean for Apple's bottom line with the event Kicking off as we speak, let's get back to Steve Kovac out there in Cupertino. Steve, people would be forgiven for thinking this whole thing is is a, a headset unveiled. But this is a developer conference that's really about paving the way for software for the next iPhone, possibly chips for the Mac that helped them gain a lot of market share during the pandemic. How important are those pieces uh, during this event?
2: Yeah, incredibly important, John, because this is still the iPhone company. So any updates to iOS are incredibly important. On that front, what I'm going to be looking for is any uh, announcements around wallet and fintech. You might remember at the same event a year ago, they announced that buy now, pay later product that sent shares of a firm down. And they have huge ambitions for Apple Pay. There was a really interesting report that Apple put out last week saying $2 trillion in economic activity happened just in one year through iOS apps. And you might be asking yourself, well, how do they capture some of the activity if it's not subject to the so-called App Store tax? They do it through Apple Pay and collecting some of those transactions and slices from that. So anything they can do to kind of move the needle there is going to be super interesting. But to your point, it's a developer's conference. The reason why they're going to announce a headset today is because they need these developers in the audience that's happening at the show right now to make the experiences to get this product and and get it sold. All right, so
1: Steve, a lot of people have been saying for the past several years about everything that Apple does, oh, it's evolutionary, not revolutionary. And yet, here the stock is, near a $3 trillion market cap at all-time highs. How does the smart investor distinguish between you know, disappointed chatter around these announcements and the reality that, unlike Amazon, right, where people were like, oh, why didn't Apple do the echo? Why didn't Apple do the Unlike Amazon, Apple is at all-time highs.
2: Yeah, and exactly. And a lot of that might be some excitement leading up to this. But keep in mind, this is going to be a very long-term project. This is not going to uh, cannibalize the iPhone. Like maybe we saw the iPhone cannibalize the iPod, for example. Uh, It's more like the watch, in my opinion, where it's sort of like an accessory. And they can kind of figure out uh, the the market fit for that from there. Again, if you remember when the watch first came out, this, by the way, that was their last major product about nine years ago. It was mostly focused on trying to be a little iPhone on your wrist then they kind of paired back a lot of those features and i expect to see something similar uh, out of the headset see what works no one has figured it out yet and more so than that what is apple's vision for it we know what meta thinks and we know what other companies think what is the apple sales pitch for a headset in mixed reality
1: call me crazy but uh, shouldn't investors expect to hear something about ai from apple's custom chips During this event, there's been a lot of talk about NVIDIA and AI, but Apple has been building its own graphics processing cores, doing its own AI work that's meant to feed into not just iPhones, but into things like this mixed reality headset we expect to see. Doesn't Apple with developers need to make the case for the raw horsepower capability that's built into this thing, not just for raw visualization, but also for AI to be able to create environments and do it in an efficient way?
2: Yeah, and not just that, Apple, you know, the privacy-focused company, they like a lot of that AI data to be processed on device. So yes, I'm expecting, especially there's going to be likely a Mac announcement today, and we're expecting, you know, those M-series chips that have been just outperforming Intel and, you know, that transition that they've successfully made off of Intel to the Mac, that same chip is likely going to be powering the new headset. So that's a huge opportunity on the AI front for them to say, look, maybe we don't have a Siri chat GPT type product, but we do have a lot of stuff going on under the hood in AI and machine learning to make this technology we're showing you possible. So if they do make an AI pitch, it's going to be something along those lines, I suspect.
1: Well, Steve, we're going to come back to you during the hour, not just for the raw information, because people can get that on the stream, but for that key analysis to understand the importance of what's being announced. Steve Kovac, uh, right now, let's get to Barton Crockett and Casey Newton. Uh, Casey, uh, I'll start with you on this one, because uh, this headset has been highly anticipated, and yet people tend to think, oh, it's a sell the news event when Apple uh, announces just about everything. Just about everything's been like, oh, it's not a big deal. Then years later, perhaps it is a big deal. How do you frame what Apple's multi-year approach is to these technologies and how an investor should sort of prepare for that?
3: I would prepare by measuring my expectations. You know, that first Apple Watch came out, it wasn't great. It did take a while for Apple to figure out exactly what it was for. They got there in the end, now it's a $10 billion business. I think this VR, AR headset could be an even bigger business, but there's still a lot of fundamental technology that needs to get invented in order for it to work as well as Apple wants it to and for it to be affordable. So if investors want to invest based on this product, I think they have to be prepared to be very patient.
1: Martin, is this going to be a gaming console?
4: Um, Look, I think that that we all hope it's more than a a gaming console. Um, But I do think what, what your first guest said um, about expectations is really crucial here. I mean, this is um, a launch where Apple is basically getting people, I think, primarily to buy into the idea that this could become big. And that's a great kind of setup for the stock. So you've got a, uh, a, an argument for seeing and believing in what could happen without actually having to deliver it today. Um, so, so it couldn't be a better backdrop for kind of starting down this road. Um, I do like the idea that Apple is coming in with a high-end device. Um, You know, I think one of the things they need to do is separate themselves from what's already out there, which is the Quest products from Meta. Um, You know, and and where those guys are pursuing kind of the value end, Apple pursuing the premium end, that's right in Apple's wheelhouse. If they can make this seem like an aspirational product um, with something that could be the future, you know, I think you could see investors really getting interested in that and this being helpful for the equity. Right now, there's nothing meaningful in the models for it, including ours where, you know, we really don't have anything meaningful yet, Um, but we'll look at what happens today and see if we need to reevaluate that.
1: Barton, speaking of Meta, how dangerous is this potentially for Meta? Because they're subsidizing their hardware with the argument that, well, we're building out an ecosystem, we're gonna build volumes of this thing, that's what's gonna make it. If Apple comes in with a product that costs multiples more than Meta's that they don't have to subsidize, and it's even just equally popular, not even more popular, right? Doesn't that mean that Meta bleeds cash for no great outcome down the road?
4: Well, I think um, you know the risk for Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, is that um, Quest becomes the Fitbit of virtual reality, the early leader um, that ends up being you know too cheap relative to um, the Apple device out there, and I think that um, from the stock perspective. That's not necessarily bad. I mean, I think that investors would love to see Meta rein in its investments in the reality. Um, you know, we, we like the stock. We like it for the apps. Um, we're not there for the metaverse. Now, the risk is that they dig in their heels and, you know, they spend more chasing something that really they aren't going to win. Um, this is going to okay. play out over many years. Um, so we'll have to see.
1: Casey, uh, Barton said that he hopes that this is more than a gaming console. I think part of the problem with some of these things when they come out is they try to be everything. Like, the, the, the yeah. watch, it's a health monitoring device, really, that happens to also tell time. And that's what's great about it. took a while to figure that out, right? The MetaQuest, I don't know what that thing is. You know, legless avatars, it's supposed to be some kind of meeting ro- bad meeting room, I don't know. But if they were to come out with a great gaming console that goes on your face and mixes in with reality and is the most awesome thing my kids have ever seen, that I could get behind, right?
3: What, what, what about it? Well, I I think you're right, but Apple wouldn't have invested this much if they thought that it could only be a gaming console. You know, gaming is, is a pretty good business, but I'm not sure it's a big enough business to really get Apple's attention here. So what I have my eyes on today is what can it do with those productivity uses? Can it make this feel like something that an office worker actually wants to pick up to do a, a virtual FaceTime call? Um, I'll tell you, I've tried it with the Quest Pro and it's kind of only so-so. So I think there's a lot to be built there. And if Apple can get much better at the productivity, then they may have a hit on their hands.
1: Yeah, I don't know though. Like, where we like, yeah, the iPhone, it would be great if it can play games and. Do fit, but but if, if it can do word, that's really what's I, – I don't know if there's been a productivity-driven cultural phenomenon lately, but I, I, guess, I guess we'll see. Along those lines, though, uh, something that is productivity-driving is Apple's custom chips. Those often get a lot of attention at WWDC, but perhaps we don't spend enough time talking about the kind of margin and value that those have created for Apple. That should be important for investors, no?
3: Yeah, I think the the chips are clearly a key ingredient in why that hardware is just so good, right? Particularly on that laptop side of things. Apple's laptops have improved, I would say, more in the past three or four years than they did in the past 10. And I think chips were a huge part of that story. So that vertical integration they've got going on just continues to to drive uh, excellence for them. All right,
1: guys, thank you. Casey Newton and Barton Crockett. Meanwhile, a couple of headlines coming out of WWDC. There is, as expected, a 15-inch MacBook Air. It's going to start at $1299, though, which is a lot cheaper than the rumors that I have been seeing. Also, the 13-inch model, the price went down by 100 bucks. Now, the, you know, deflation in technology is back. That hadn't been the case over the past year. So perhaps, you know, macro heads uh, keep note On that as well. Right now, let's stick with tech, but turn to the chip stocks. The semiconductor ETF, SMH, up more than 40% since January, on pace for its best first half of the year ever, as AI hype drives a lot of gains. NVIDIA has led the group higher so far this year, up 170%. Advanced Micro Devices, AMD, gained more than 80%, while on semi and Micron both up nearly 40%. Citi out with a new note, naming Micron a top pick, while also issuing a warning about this melt-up in prices, writing, with the exception of NVIDIA, it expects a pullback, as most chip makers are not directly connected to generative AI and are also facing growth and inventory challenges. Joining me now is the analyst behind that call, Citi's Chris Danley. Chris? I hear what you're saying here. I also have noticed that a lot of these chip names pulled way back in the months leading up to this year. Thinking of the likes of Marvell, Qualcomm, you know, they're coming out with these new products. They have these growth areas. The CEOs were all excited about the stocks going up and then they tanked. So why at this point, even though there's been a run up in the SMH, is it a bad time to buy in?
5: Sure. So we were just in Asia last week, and really digging into the supply chain and you know, where all these products are being made, bought, sold, et cetera, et cetera. And what we found was that you know AI, AI, uh, is doing very well. Um, but that is a very thin slice of the market, essentially Nvidia and a couple of others, and then the rest of the semiconductor market, from handsets to automotive to industrial. Uh, and several other end markets, even data center that has too much inventory is still pretty weak. So, you know, hey, we like NVIDIA. It's doing great. But, you know, you've had numbers come down so far this year. We think numbers come down again uh, in about a month and a half when these companies report. And, you know, you show the chart where we've had this, you know, big spike uh, in the semis over the last month, month and a half. AI is going to be great. It's just a little small as far as they uh as far as a driver goes right now. So we're just saying, hey, let's pump the brakes a little bit and you know, maybe take some profits. OK, but Chris, should semiconductor
1: investors even really be focused on AI across the board as a driver? I mean, you can look at the, the continuing move toward solid state uh, memory uh, as an issue. You could look at the, the shift in automotive platforms toward autonomous and digital. You could look at the digitization of the manufacturing floor yep. as a potential driver, none of those directly AI related, but all of them continuing to happen. Are these stocks richly priced when you consider potential growth from those things? Do they need an AI storyline to deserve to go higher?
5: Uh, well, they, they definitely need that, and they're definitely grabbing onto that. I mean, AI was mentioned seemingly every other sentence uh, in most meetings we had last week. But like you talked about, this most of this is just way out there. Right? And you're talking a few years out in the future. So right now, it's just low single digits as part of, a, part of a percentage of semis. And the one statistic we looked at that really scared us is the Sox index is at a 40, percent premium to the S&P 500 right now. That's the highest premium it's had, I think, in 15 years uh, since the global financial crisis. And, th- you know, you're in an environment where – in aggregate the numbers are going to be coming down. So, you know, we're just saying, hey, pump the brakes here a little bit on this AI. It's going to be great. Clearly Nvidia is, is getting all the hype and a lot of the business right now, but for the rest of semis it's a pretty tough environment.
1: And that's what I wonder, is the is the difference between the valuation of the names that are that are at the top very different historically from the valuation of the names at the bottom? So, is the whole socks sort of uh, priced in a way that's concerning? Or is it more that certain names have run up so far that it makes the whole index look relatively expensive?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's almost like uh, I cover the meme stocks or something like that, right? NVIDIA had such a huge blowout of a quarter. Um, folks just started buying everything they can get their hands on. Mm. And then you, know, you had a lot of other companies say, hey, 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 we do AI too, even though it's only 1% or 2% of their revenue. So you know these things happen. The semiconductor space is extraordinarily volatile. I've been covering it for 25 years. It's it's never not been volatile, and so you can have periods of time like we've had over the last six weeks where you get these sudden spikes. Uh, but you have to be a little bit nimble, in our opinion, especially given the you know the environment. Even for the second half, looks a little bit sketchy right now.
1: All right, Chris Danley, uh, thank you for that view on semiconductors, Uh, still getting some uh, headlines out of Apple WWDC. Apple announcing uh, Mac Pro with Apple Silicon. That's the last model in the lineup to ditch Intel chips for Apple's own homegrown design. So the transition off of Intel from Apple is now complete. It was basically complete before because the Mac Pro is very low volume, but this is a very significant moment for Apple's ecosystem where they can now say to developers, we're all on our own silicon, and they have completed that transition remarkably smoothly with share gains as we mentioned earlier in the show for the Mac. Coming up, should the Fed hike, pause, or pivot? That is the question everybody's asking after Friday's strong jobs report. We're going to look at what the market is pricing in and how investors should position. Plus, we are watching all the updates, as I mentioned, just now coming out of Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. We're going to bring you the latest headlines with the stock now up nearly 50% from its recent low. The exchange is back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks mostly in the green after posting their best week since March. Christina Parks has a closer look at the numbers. Christina.
0: Yeah, we've got pretty much a mixed bag here, but the S&P 500 is getting closer to bull market territory. Much of the gains really has to do with what we're going to call what? The seven tech names, AI Mafia or the magnificent, uh, magnificent Seven, as Jim Cramer likes to say, including NVIDIA, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Meta, Google, Amazon and Tesla. So those names are really driving the Nasdaq right now on pace for its best first half of the year since 19. 19- 1991, the year the World Wide Web came to life with its first web page. The Nasdaq is up about 26% year-to-date, with the Nasdaq 100 hitting a fresh 52-week high. Apple, like you mentioned, of course, helping with a lot of these moves, given its weight and the launch of its new products today. But let's talk about some sectors. Financials led a little bit lower today by some big names. JP Morgan, you can see down almost 1.5% Fidelity, half a percent, fifth third, over 1%. The Wall Street Journal reporting that banks may need to raise capital requirements by 20%. So that's adding pressure on the sector. Lastly, I'm going to make a really strange pivot, but I want to talk about the crypto sphere because the SEC announced at 11 a.m. Eastern that they're suing crypto exchange Binance over U.S. securities violation. That is weighing negatively across the space. You can see Coinbase also has a a, a Wells notice issued against them from the SEC. So they're selling off quite dramatically, almost 11 percent lower. Marathon 9, Riot, uh, also 8 percent, John.
1: Yeah, Christina, the main thing that caught my eye in this SEC lawsuit uh, versus Binance is the issue of commingling customer funds, which reminds me of FTX, but uh, it, it seems like it would be different from any issues uh, with Coinbase. Coinbase, public, you know, seems to be operating in a way that, that's more visible. Are, are people just trading these things together, perhaps, not because they're all necessarily doing the same things?
0: Yes, the answer is 100% yes, and also because the SEC has said that they're going to be going after so many of these names, including Coinbase, so it does get lumped in, but In particular with Binance, there's a lot of, there's 13 charges against the company. Uh, The four main points one was the commingling of customer assets, the other is uh, possibly selling unregistered securities, these are digital assets. And then this brings up the whole question what is a security? The crypto world is saying that the SEC won't define it. And then another major point, too, is the fact that they're operating a platform that wasn't cleared with the SEC. Binance is saying, no, no, we don't operate. uh, That clearinghouse in the United States, we have Binance.us, but that's not the clearinghouse. So there's a lot of, uh, I guess, vagueness about what's going on internally with the company. But both Coinbase and uh, Binance are arguing the SEC is just not playing ball, not working with them, not communicating, uh, et cetera. And so, John, just one last point because it's important. Binance did say they're not a U.S. exchange, so the SEC's actions are limited in reach. They just wrote this in a blog post maybe about an hour ago.
1: All right. Well, uh, and some cryptocurrencies themselves trading down quite a bit, Bitcoin down what, uh, more than five and a half oh, percent, Ethereum <laughs> as well. Yeah, we'll keep our eyes on those, too. Christina, thanks. Thank you. And now we're just a little more than a week away from the next Fed meeting. Markets expecting a pause in rate hikes. But thanks to last week's strong jobs report, things are shaping up a bit differently for July's decision and the remainder of the year. Steve Leisman joins me now with that story. Steve.
6: Yeah. Hey, John, the big upside surprise in that Friday jobs report didn't cause markets to price in a June hike, which is what some might have expected. There's a better than 70 percent probability that the Fed pauses. That's the way futures are priced right now. What it did change is the market's expectation for rate cuts this year. In fact, they have now been practically priced out. Before the jobs report, Fed Funds Futures had seen at least one rate cut by December, putting the year-end funds rate at 485, but the yield is now well over 5% after the number suggesting the Fed will remain around current levels until the new year. The result, the gap between where the Fed expects to be and where the market thinks the Fed is going to be, it's narrowed to almost nothing. It had been as high as 100 basis points or a full percentage point last month. It's now just well, I call it eight basis points, I would say, or 15 basis points now. Among the reasons for the change, you have that stronger economic growth in the jobs report, stubborn inflation that won't be helped, by the way, by the port shutdown and higher oil prices, and the Treasury rebuilding coffers, coffers some estimated may need to sell a trillion dollars in bills, putting upward pressure on rates. Meanwhile, uh, while a pause is, in, is priced in for June, futures place a nearly 70% chance on a July hike. So they're calling that more of a skip in June and then a hike. The extent to which stocks have been buoyed by expectations for a rate cut and now face a challenge from a Fed, it's now believed likely to keep rates above 5 percent, even when New Year's Day rolls around, John. So uh, it's a question as to whether or not the markets have internalized the possibility that the Fed may not be cutting this year.
1: Yeah, uh, I I guess it always seemed a bit odd to expect that, to me anyway, uh, to a layman. But on, on the hike, we're going from running to skipping. Right. Still still moving forward, but just perhaps at a different pace. Uh, Steve Leisman, thank you. Uh, While my next guest agrees that there is going to be a pause at next week's meeting, she is not stopping there, saying the Fed could be done with hikes altogether thanks to the slowing labor market and progress on inflation. Joining me now is Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, along with Marky Patel, uh, senior portfolio manager at Allspring global investments. Uh, welcome to both of you. Julia, it, it sure seems like with the strength of that job number, with the strength uh, of the inflation, uh, inflation reading uh, at, at core, like there would be reason to raise from here. But you say no?
7: Yeah, I mean, look, let's take a look at that job report under the hood a little bit. Um, so the job number was very strong, but the unemployment rate also jumped three tenths, which is an unusually large upward move in the unemployment rate. Um, when we look at the discrepancy between these two readings, what we see is falling self employment. We see a falling work week. So aggregate hours work, which is the labor market measure that feeds into GDP, is slowing a lot faster than jobs. So there is more indications of slowing in the labor market than just that headline payroll number suggests. Wage growth is moderating. Uh, And we do think that things like used car prices, which temporarily put some upward pressure on core inflation in the last two months, is going to turn around and go deeply negative in the next few months. So we think the Fed is about to see a string of inflation readings that are going to give it a lot more comfort that its policy is starting to have an effect.
1: Okay, but Margie, it seems to me like the Fed's been about to see a string of such good news for a long time, but the surprise to me has been how little things are slowing down relative to what one might expect. Okay, these 75 basis point hikes eventually are going to catch up to us and we're going to feel them, or that regional bank stress is going to cause a break right on credit availability, and, and we're hearing from overseas, yeah, maybe not so much.
7: Mm -hmm. Well, that's right. I think it shows you there is, if not a disconnect, not a close relationship between what the Fed has done and what the economy has done. We had a record increase in short rates over the shortest period of time, 5% in one year, and yet the economy is really in pretty good shape, consumers in good shape, the labor market looks not bad, and here and there we're seeing signs that inflation is certainly not accelerating, it's actually tapering off. So the Fed, I think, is probably a little flummoxed because whatever formula it had for raising rates by this much, we have this much response in the market in terms of inflation and growth just as not happened. The good news is the economy is very strong in spite of what the Fed has done. So we hope the Fed will take uh, their foot off the brake and uh, stop raising rates and stop damaging the economy and uh, let the economy grow, which is what we think will happen.
1: Okay, so Julia, what is the fixed income strategy here aside from buying high quality bonds? Because, yes, we've heard that before, but what should the fixed income investor do here that she or he is going to feel really smart about three years from now?
7: Well, I think like what we what we were you were just outlining uh, in terms of the repricing of Fed policy. I think that's going in the right direction. What the Fed is trying to do here is find the rate it can hold at. That's what a soft landing is. Is not the Fed turning around and cutting very quickly. It's finding that rate that's going to gradually put downward pressure on inflation and keep the economy on an even keel. Um, I think we're getting close to that rate. There may be another hike. I think there's risks to that, but we're not far from that. But it does mean higher for longer. It doesn't mean a quick-fed pivot. I think the playbook from last cycle Uh, of, you know, the Fed reacting to every weakness with a rate cut is not going to come forward this cycle. So what were the areas that benefited lower for longer? Uh, I think right now we still see some richness in in, uh, credit spreads. There's going to be pain in companies that are, you know, going to have to show profits. They're going to have to show real returns. Mm. Uh, It's not going to be a lot of financial engineering at their fingertips the way there was last cycle. So there's going to be businesses that are in the real economy delivering real returns are the ones that I think are gonna benefit in this higher rate environment.
1: And cash probably not gonna be trash again for a very, very long time. Julia, Margie, thank you. And now to Tyler Matheson, who's got a CNBC news update. Tyler.
8: John, thank you very much. And uh, I'm Tyler Matheson. Here is your CNBC update at this hour. Police in Davenport, Iowa, say the bodies of three men were recovered from the site of a collapsed six-story apartment building over the weekend. Meanwhile, a resident of that building filed a lawsuit today against the owner, the city of Davenport, and engineers and contractors who worked on the complex. The suit alleges they knew the building was failing and didn't tell tenants their lives were in danger. New Hampshire Governor John Sununu will not join the growing field of Republicans running for president in 2024. Sununu shared the news on CNN and in an op-ed in the Washington Post today. He said he will endorse the GOP's ultimate nominee, but that he is rooting against Donald Trump. And SpaceX's latest Dragon cargo mission lifted off today from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The rocket carrying thousands of pounds of scientific gear and provisions for the crew on the International Space Station. This is Dragon's 28th commercial resupply mission to the ISS. John, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you. And coming up, we're going to have the latest headlines from the Apple's Worldwide
1: Developer Conference. As the company nears $3 trillion in market cap again, $190.73 would be the share price to watch. So far, Apple has announced a new MacBook Air, 15-inch there. Some new features in iOS 17. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Apple shares touching an all-time high today as the company's annual Worldwide Developer Conference Continues. Let's get back to Steve Kovac out in Cupertino at Apple headquarters to recap what we've heard so far. Steve, we got that M2 Ultra system on a chip, did we not?
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think that's the biggest headline so far, John. Basically, right now, the Mac Pro was the last model that uh, hadn't moved over from Intel yet. Announcing today this M2 Ultra chip is going to power the next model of the Mac Pro, and they have completed their transition away from Intel to their own in-house design M chips. Also taking a little shot at Intel here saying uh, the performance of these new chips are about 4x uh, what they've seen in Intel Macs. So that transition is now complete. No more Intel Macs. On top of that, John, we're getting uh, news out of uh, iOS 17. That's what they're going over right now, including what they call a standby mode, which is, for lack of a better, term, kind of a nightstand mode when you're charging your device, you can turn it to its side. It'll show photos, some widgets. If you have one of the newer iPhone 14 Pros, even when the screen uh, is that always on display, it can also display some of those widgets as well. And some cool little features. I know you're asking me earlier uh, in the hour, uh, what are we going to hear about AI? Well, one thing they did announce is it's going to help with predictive typing. So uh, announcing today part of iOS 17 is going to have that predictive text is going to be improved on the keyboard due to uh, transformer technology, very similar to what ChatGPT uses, John.
1: Better autocorrect, we can all get behind that, right? Because it's it's spotty spotty sometimes. Now, I, I think what's key here, though, is that Apple's chip work is gonna be essential to making this mixed reality headset we expect work correctly. And in the past, back before this renaissance that Apple's been through, Apple tried to design its own chips and compete, uh, compete with Intel and failed. They ended up having to go to Intel, but this time they have wildly right. succeeded. How much does this pave the way for developer belief uh, in what Apple comes out with next and, and perhaps investor belief in it as well?
2: Yeah, intensely. It just shows not only can they make their own CPUs for this, but, you know, it also brings some optimism. We know they're working on their own modems for Qualcomm. So, you know, when they're ready to make that transition over their own chips. And we also have reports that maybe they're trying to get, uh, do their own in-house chips for things like uh, radio frequency chips to kind of get rid of Broadcom. I know they just signed that deal, but the idea is maybe when that deal's up, they'll switch over to that. And then on the developer front, yeah, these are very powerful chips. I know people will get their hands on them and really put them through their pace but that does help with software development. It's not just, you know, Pixar animators and things like that. And that's going to be key, John, uh, for this new headset, because those will also be running those M2 chips, and these new Macs can help with the development of apps for that new device.
1: All right, Steve, stick around. I do want to mention we are at Session lows on the Dow, the S&P still in the green, but barely about flat, the NASDAQ higher flat fractionally. Let, let's bring Rosenblatt's Barton Crockett back in for his take on what we've heard so far. Barton, I, I assume you've been keeping up with this keynote journaling, right? So now we've got the phone, you know, I, iOS telling us what we did today and inviting us to reflect on what we've done. What, what's the strategy here why is this an important software effort for Apple?
4: Well, I think the, the, the biggest, I think, support for Apple stock has been their ability to take share in smartphone. And their ability to take share in smartphone is a lot of things. Um, one of them is their ability to innovate and feature set um, in a way that is addictive and also pulls you into their uh, proprietary um, ecosystem. And certainly I think that, that, you know, journaling is a stab at that. You know, we'll see how much buy-in there is from a broad consumer set. One of the things that I think was also interesting was their attachment of, uh, you know, improvement of basically yourself kind of photo that you're putting uh, around your voicemail and around your contact. Um, I suspect that's something that will work better within the Apple ecosystem than between an Apple and an Android. Um, and, And I suspect as we dig into more of these features, uh, you know, it's going to give people more of a reason to become uh, an iPhone user and to switch away from Android, um, and mm. pull people who aren't in. You know, will have more envy and want to get into this ecosystem. Um, they've had great traction with younger consumers, and a lot of it is that. Um, and, um, you know, yes.
1: Well, what should we make of Apple's approach? to what a lot of people are calling AI in the metaverse, but they sort of refuse to use those buzzwords. Right now, You know, they're talking about advanced machine learning and some of their you know, software efforts. They, they've been using AI for a while, but not in the chat GPT sense. Also, they talk about you know mixed reality. They've been working on that for a long time in the phones. We expect to see that in the headset, but they've thrown some shade on the term metaverse. Why does Apple do that? And how should investors uh, I- interpret that, right, as they might try to trade Apple alongside mm. other companies that are c- caught up in the same storylines?
4: Look, I think that Apple is um, distinguishing their brand. Um, and, you know, they're trying uh, to really, I think, position themselves to be a competitor uh, with the incumbent, which is Meta with the Oculus. And, you uh, um, Um, And I think that this, uh, you know, kind of using of different terms um, and taking a different tack. They're going at the high end Meta's kind of going for the low end. Um, You know, it's it's a differentiation of approach that I think plays to Apple's strength, which is premium, um, which is privacy first. um, And really, I think, trying to get people maybe subliminally to think about that when they're looking at, you know, which device platforms that they're interested in. Uh,
1: Steve. We're still awaiting, of course, the, you know the, the big announcement that investors are expecting here. That is the mixed reality headset. Meta Platforms, right now, Facebook's parent, is trading about flat. You spent a lot of time with Meta's folks who do uh, these headsets. What do you see as a potential win? For Meta in this presentation, I guess if it goes wrong, like AI for Google went wrong, <laughs> what, yeah. what what would be a big loss for Meta in this presentation?
2: Yeah, for sure. I don't think anything is going to go wrong, John, since this is a pre-recorded demo and very polished and edited. So we're not going to see a live demo snafu. So that's that's. Let's put that aside for now. But look, what uh, would be a, a really hurt Meta is if they announce a much lower than expected price. You know, when um, last week when they came out with their headset to try to undercut this announcement today, uh, they talked a lot about price and saying, look how affordable it is. It's only hundreds of dollars. The implication, of course, being everyone's expecting the headset from Apple to be thousands of dollars instead of a few hundred. There's that aspect of it. And then there's also the aspect of just the speeds and feeds of it. And it sounds like on that front, it sounds like Apple's gonna do a lot better, meaning your sharper displays, uh, b- better uh, processing power and things like that to really have a more high-end experience of what you've seen with Meta. I've used Meta's headsets, including their Pro headset, and it does not look great when you're looking through that mixed reality environment. The, uh, the real world looks very pixelated and blurry and it's slow and janky and a little buggy. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done there on the Meta front, and if Apple can figure that out and kind of make you feel present, even while you're wearing the headset, that's going to be bad for Meta.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, thank you. I mean, a $3,000 headset. That's as crazy as a $1,000 phone. Remember when people were saying a $1,000 phone? Who would ever? (sighs) Yeah, well, we'll see.
2: Uh, But carriers subsidize those $1,000 phones.
1: Well, uh, the business model we await. Uh, Steve Barton, thank you. All right, coming up, the OPEC put. How much does it really matter to the energy markets? Our Brian Sullivan has the details from yesterday's meeting and the impact of Saudi production cuts next. And as we go to break, here is a look at the Dow with Intel, the worst performer on the back of that very widely expected Apple announcement about the Mac Pro transitioning from Intel's chips. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Crude oil up about 1 percent, pairing initial gains after Saudi Arabia announced further voluntary production cuts at yesterday's OPEC meeting. Brian Sullivan, what does that mean for the path of prices heading into the summer season?
9: Well, John, hi. I don't know if it means prices are going to go up because most of the bullish analysts, of course, we know have been wrong. But there's probably at least got to be a floor now onto pricing. According to all the research that I've been reading since that decision by Saudi Arabia Yesterday, because they had a meeting on Saturday and Sunday in Vienna, Austria. Most believe that it's going to create some kind of a floor on prices, which is important because if you remember, we are going to try to refill our strategic petroleum reserve. We would like to do it at prices between 67 and 72 a barrel. So, right when we kind of break below 70, we see this new cut come in in July. Now, I want to be clear this is not OPEC. This is Saudi Arabia unilaterally deciding that in July, right now, one month only, it's going to cut by an extra one million barrels per day. But the Saudi energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, telling the group, telling us in an interview uh, with CNBC International that those cuts certainly could be extended, John, past the summer. Remember, we have sold 220 million barrels of oil from that strategic petroleum reserve. There's been a lot of extra oil floating around for the last 18 or so months. And now it's clear that the Saudis and, of course, OPEC with that April cut are looking to maybe pull some of that off the market.
1: Yeah, looks like it, Brian, thank you. Uh, Coming up, we're gonna hear from Peter Diamandis and Singularity University's Salim Ismail on how companies can stay competitive and ahead of the AI curve. That is next. Welcome back to the exchange. Tech taking off this year, thanks to the AI frenzy. The Nasdaq on pace for its best first half of the year since 1991. My next guests say that in order to stay relevant and grow rapidly, organizations need to leverage tech, calling out AI specifically, and they also need innovation and creativity. They lay out how to do all that in their new new book, Exponential Organizations 2.0: The New Playbook for 10x Growth and impact. Joining me now to discuss Peter Diamandis, executive chairman of the Prize Foundation, and Salim Ismail, founding executive director of Singularity University. Peter, Salim, welcome. Peter, I want to start with this broader question about AI, because a year ago and before people were saying China's got this enormous lead and advantage in AI because they have no restraints on the data that they can gather on society. But somehow the conversation has shifted with large language models, with this new front end. And it seems to me that China's at somewhat of a disadvantage because there are things that AI could answer that they don't want people to know. So how should an organization think about the advantages and disadvantages of engaging uh, along that spectrum uh, of how things can shift so quickly?
10: Yeah, John, appreciate that. You know, in this new book, EXO 2.0, we identified not just AI. AI is one of the most important attributes, but there's 11 of them that the highest performing companies out there are utilizing. Uh, And these attributes that are growing exponentially and allow a company to basically uh, drive that massive growth. Now, AI is hypercritical, and it's growing more impactfully and exponentially than any other. Salim, do you want to uh, jump in?
11: Yeah, you know, we found, uh, to answer your question, John, the, the open models over time always beat closed models. And I think that's where China will have a difficult time, because trying to restrict the use of this is going to be very hard. And it's the same for companies. If they don't hop on the bandwagon, they won't be around for very long.
1: So what about, Salim, uh, data security? There are multiple companies now coming out trying to say, hey, we have a way for you to use uh, large language models, for you to use these AI tools, but do it in a way that keeps your data safe. Um, Companies, it it would seem to me, have to do that. Governments certainly do, but you're saying it's going to slow them down.
11: It well, What happens is you can train the data on open data sets, train the model, and then use your private data set to commercialize. So I think we're going to see a huge amount of that going forward. You know, we've described a whole set of attributes like leveraging community, leveraging data, leveraging AI, that you have to be using all of them to compete effectively in this world that's coming.
1: Peter, how is creativity, which is another one of the uh, exponential growth drivers that you talk about, how is that different in this era of of all kinds of different tools available. I I think a lot of people think that specialization is really important right now versus the older liberal arts mindset. How does does creativity fit into um, that (laughs) mindset that many people are in right now?
10: Yeah, and we speak about in the book, the critical aspects of mindset, a curiosity mindset Uh, really a creative mindset, an abundance mindset, an exponential mindset, a moonshot mindset. And really, a day before something is truly a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. And the challenges are that most large companies are lumbering along, and they're doing the same old thing over and over again. But what they really need to be looking at is a massively disruptive idea, which threatens their base, right? Uh, Kodak is a perfect example, invented the digital camera, but failed to take advantage of it because it cannibalized The paper and chemicals business, which was their profit center, but that drove them out of business. We're seeing the same thing over and over again, whether it's Netflix and Blockbuster. So listen, uh, creativity and the willingness of an organization, one of the things we speak about is the importance of autonomy and the importance of taking moonshots inside your organization. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in incrementalism. Um, And it's just, Hmm. it's fundamental to, uh, to a company here. Salim, I see John, more I organizations you're... than ever
1: confused about even how to work, not just you know, yeah. what to work on, et cetera, but how much is hybrid, how much needs to be in person based on the nature of our work, based on the nature of our clients, et cetera, et cetera. Do, in, do organizations need to figure that out? Is there a certain type of playbook that they should follow in order to uh, grow exponentially while also trying to allow for different modes of work?
11: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we identified this model seven or eight years ago and put it out. In fact, I did a segment on CNB's Box where we did a, a rank the Fortune 100 by this model. Okay, And just last year, we did a seven-year trailing analysis and found that the, in the Fortune 100, the 10 companies that followed this model the most compared to the 10 that followed the, the least delivered 40 times more shareholder returns over seven years. So that's an unbelievable number because as the external world becomes more volatile, your ability to adapt is going to drive market value. And now we can completely prove that. Now we have a full ratification of the model and we're issuing essentially a playbook for how to implement it into all sorts of organizations.
1: So I don't remember seven years ago. Peter, maybe you could chime in here. What what was the impact uh, of that model during COVID, for example? Was it proven out? Was it challenged?
10: Yeah. Yeah, one of the elements of the of the model here is staff on demand, where you're actually, uh, Uber is a perfect example, it doesn't own its drivers, right? The drivers are on demand. And so if you've got staff on demand, it's one of those attributes. It allows you to flex up and flex down as you have, you know, right-hand turns in, in society like COVID was. You know, one of the things that we're doing, John, was we're launching this book tomorrow. We're going to be holding a three-hour master class for entrepreneurs who want to build exponential organizations uh, and for companies that are being threatened by this because these large companies are the dinosaurs and the asteroid impact are these exponential technologies that are going to cause a a die-out over the course of the next seven, eight years. Uh, So if folks are interested in joining this masterclass, uh, they can register at diamandis.com slash exo. uh, And we're going to walk through all the attributes. It's free. And it's available. We also built the book as an AI so that you can query the book. Um, it's you know the old books are going to be uh, something of the bygone era. So uh, do you pay? Do you pay to query the AI? No, it's a free. The AI is free and the course is free. We're trying to actually help entrepreneurs play a bigger game and go out there and, and solve the biggest problems on the world. Instead of building another photo sharing app, let's go out there and really make a dent in the universe. So here. why
1: why make querying the book in AI form free and charge for the book. Why not do it the other way around?
11: So we're well, going you want people that to query the book and use it as they need to, whenever they need to. If they want to buy the book, great. But the, the AI gives them on-demand access. So you can say, I'm a shipping company. How would I turn 10x bigger? And it literally ripple through and give you the answers from the book and all the case studies that we'll upload into it. I gotta, so this becomes an incredibly important interaction okay. for that we'll think is going to pervade the future.
1: I, I got to leave it there. I, I just think that's a really interesting uh, decision and perhaps a frame for value that I'm sure we're going to explore with you guys later. Peter Diamandis, Salim Ismail, thank you. Thank you, um, John. <laughs>
11: Thanks,
1: John. Always something new with AI, including at the Apple event right now. That's going to do it for The
0: Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.